Hello, my name is Adam Conover, and welcome to Humans Who Make Games, a show where I have a long-form, intimate conversation with the people who make some of your favorite video games. Now, today's interview is a little bit of a different one, uh, because we have not just a game designer on the show, we have the head of a game design studio. Her name is Tanya X. Short, she runs Kit Fox Games, and she is here to tell us firsthand about the trials and tribulations of running a truly indie game design studio, one that needs to make its money every month in order to keep its folks paid, and they do it by making games for you to play. Uh, their game that's gotten the most press is actually an upcoming game called Boyfriend Dungeon, a game where uh, it's a dungeon crawl where you can date your weapons. Dungeon crawl meets dating sim. I have played the demo. Extremely fun. They are also the studio that is porting the cult classic Dwarf Fortress to the graphical format, and they are also the team behind the Switch game Moon Hunters. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Without further ado, here is Tanya X Short. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be invited. So uh, we on this show have had a lot of folks who, you know, we've had them on because they have developed a particular game, et cetera. You, however, also run a game studio, correct? I do. I do. Kid Fox Games is my pride and joy. <laughs> and you guys have a game coming out uh, called Boyfriend Dungeon, right? Correct. Uh, and just tell people, because that game is not out yet, uh, a little bit about what it is. Sure. It's a dating sim slash dungeon crawler. We call it a shack and slash, where you <laughs> <laughs> you fight monsters in the dungeon, and when you find weapons, you uh, can date them to level them up with your love. <laughs> I, I, I got to play a demo of it, uh, thankfully. Very fun, very fun game. So think about yeah, the dating sim, the dating sim like worked on me. Like I was, I felt flattered when the, when the sword, no, who was I talking to? It was a, I was talking to the dagger. Uh, I felt very flirty, very flirty with the dagger. Um, Good. and then we, uh, leveled up our love score and then we went and, uh, slashed some, uh, bugs in a mall. Perfect. That's, that's what you do. I mean, you got to spend time together to make a relationship real, right? <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the studio. How long have you folks been working together and, and how many games have you put out, et cetera? I, was, I, you know, I dabbled in a couple of your other games that were on Steam, grabbed a couple of them, played a few minutes. But uh, yeah, tell me about them. Yeah, we started working together in 2013. So we're, in our, we're approaching our seventh year. Oh, my goodness. Um, our first game was Shattered Planet back in 2014, and then um, we released Moon Hunters was our big one in 2016. Mm -hmm. And since then, we've actually been sort of dabbling in publishing. So we've published a couple of games. Um, the Shrouded Isle is a cult management simulator uh, where you choose a sacrifice every season. Uh, we published Six Ages, which is a follow-up to a game design cult classic, a King of Dragon Pass. Um, and we have announced oh, yeah. that we're going to be publishing the Steam version of Dwarf Fortress as well, um, because the creator of that was a good friend of mine, and he wanted someone to handle the, the publishing stuff for him. So, yeah, we're doing a lot of stuff. And we've also announced Lucifer Within Us is something we're working on right now. So we have a lot of uh, irons in the fire. So <laughs> and is this like, uh, it, you know, looking at your slate, right? These are a lot of 
well-loved projects. Uh, Dwarf Fortress, obviously famous and very popular, but it's you know been a freeware uh, ASCII art game for many years. Uh, Boyfriend Dungeon, I keep I've heard about actually. I, I believe I read Kotaku posts or whatever like a year ago, but obviously not out yet. Um, these are not big games any of them right you're not you don't have like a hollow knight or something like that or or anything that's like some you know massive uh uh success um so i'm very curious about you know one of the things i'm interested in this show is like finding out what it looks like at different you know different people's place in the industry um Mm -hmm. and so yeah is that you know it's it seems like you've got a very sort of like mid-scale uh sort of company here if if i hope that's not offensive to absolutely no not at all um if anything i still think we're we're a little scrappy yeah (laughs) (laughs) um we uh we get by a little bit on the skin of our teeth we we scrounge up money from here and there um i mean moon hunters did pretty well for us and and so far all of our publishing efforts are all at least breaking even um so we're we're lucky in a lot of ways but I, as a business person, am very pessimistic. Uh, my projections are always very dire. So I make sure that we're still going to survive for another year, even if everything flops suddenly. Um, and so far, that's worked for us. We, <laughs> we are up to uh, nine people, which is, wow. um, you know, small in terms of the industry overall, but it feels enormous when I look at our, our budget sheets. So it's uh, it's a good balance. <laughs> yeah, I mean the amount of money nine people need to live is close to a million dollars a year just for that cost alone, right? Yeah, pretty much. If you're gonna pay people what they're worth, which we don't yet, but we're working on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, so you are uh, also a developer as well, right? In addition to running yes. the studio, so you're having yes. to think those two different ways: business and programming, and then also game design. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm primarily a game designer, actually. My background, I have a master's in level design, and I worked in MMOs for a few years before jumping indie. So my my main passion is game design. And today I spent most of the time writing dates with, with weapons. So, <laughs> so that's the, the joyful part of my job, for sure. <laughs> well, walk me through a little bit of how you came to this point. Like, let's, let's start a little bit earlier. Where'd you grow up? Sure. I grew up in Southern California, actually. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I was born in L.A., and... Grew up in a tiny little town near Joshua Tree National Park and uh, avoided becoming a meth user and uh, <laughs> traveled the world quite a bit. My first job in the industry was actually in Norway. Um, I was a an AI. They called me an AI designer, but really that meant like a, a boss fight scripting person. Um, so I'd make sure the bosses attacked correctly and things like that <laughs> um, for Age of Conan, Hyborian Adventures. I... Wait, I don't think I know that game. <laughs> it's the Conan MMO from 2008, I think, is when it launched. Yeah. Is that the... It was a little floppy, yeah. Got it. Was, was the Conan mmo the later one the one where you could where the characters had penises out was that conan no that's 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 um conan exiles that's okay. just from a couple of years ago okay from, this was but they did have a very sexy sexy sexual <laughs> uh a very explicit yeah. uh, marketing campaign either way but no they didn't have the the penis adjustment until uh they had new technologies uh, yeah that, they couldn't do that in 2008 <laughs> <They> could, <laughs> i guess not model all the floppy i mean conan is uh is a sexy setting so yeah. I, I get why everyone's like nude or wearing like cloaks that, that are just barely covering all their little bits. 
Yeah, I don't know when that happened because I feel like the original stories weren't that sexy. I mean, there was a little bit, but I don't know. I guess they've leaned into it over the years. I think it's the cover paintings. You know, I think they were so pulpy and it was like, okay, we're going to get, uh, I don't remember the names of those art, but you know, those classic uh, fantasy artists. Yeah, Franzetta. Franzetta. Frank Franzetta. Yeah, because those were sexy for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably part of it. And so, (laughs) so you were in, so you're in SoCal, then you went to Norway Kind of the opposite of SoCal, uh, temperature-wise. It's like yep, yep. it's like always it's it's similarly always the same, but in a different direction, um, in a cold direction. Uh, how did you how did you find your way to Norway? I mean, honestly, so I went to graduate school in in Texas, actually, and after that, I I sent out like a like fifty applications to various studios, and mm-hmm. you know, in two thousand eight. Um, the indie scene wasn't as established. That was around when Indie Game the Movie was being filmed, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people had figured out the indie thing, but the common wisdom was go to a AAA studio, and that's that's how you become a game developer. And so, you know, I sent out a, a ton of applications. I got a few offers, and the options were basically, do I take a job for less money in the U.S., or do I get more money and get to work in Norway? So that's what mm-hmm. I did. <laughs> I picked the, the job abroad. I mean, Norway's first. also a nice place to be. Were you it in is. Oslo it or is. as long as it's not December? Yeah, yeah, no. It's uh it's very dark is the problem in the winter, but the summers are magical. It is really like midsummer. Yeah. I don't know if you went and saw Midsummer, but uh accurate documentary. Highly I did recommended. Not, <laughs> I did not see Midsummer, but I was in Norway in midsummer. And oh, it perfect. is really it is really nice. It's like the sun never sets kinda atmosphere. Yeah. It's like always magic hour. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get a lot of work done, but it's great. <laughs> <laughs> um and what brought you to you, – you got your master's in level design before you did did that. Is yes, that correct? Yes, So yes. Uh, I want to know where did you go to school and how did you come to going to that school? Sure. Um, so actually, <laughs> there's a little, a little stop in there I, I didn't mention before. I was actually teaching English in Japan at the time um, when You've been all over. I was <laughs> – I like traveling. Um, so I was teaching English in Japan and – I was thinking, well, how do I get into games? And I thought that I wanted to be like the lore master of of Elder Scrolls. That was kind of my dream job. (laughs) Um, And so I looked online at all the advice of how you do that. And they were all like, well, you could either become QA and work your way up there or you could get a degree. But that's pretty weird. Nobody does that. Um, at the time, there weren't very many programs. Um, the one that I went to that was a master's program was um, the Guild Hall at SMU, which I don't know if you've heard about, mm-hmm. but it's 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 a trade school, basically. Um, you can get a master's degree or not, but the point is that they, they train you in making a, a very practical portfolio, which I could theoretically have done on my own, but knowing myself, uh, having a structure and peer pressure and, and whatever was, was worth it um, to make me actually do it is it in called a reasonable the, time. Is it called the guild, guild Hall as though you were like joining a, a guild in a fantasy video game? Is that yeah, why it's called yeah, the Yeah, yeah, basically. Guild Hall, yeah. The guild is... hall at SMU. I, I went there and I became an apprentice. And <laughs> That's so nerdy <laughs> and, to do uh, it that way. That was the, the crunchiest time of my life for sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just. I, I just find that very, very delightfully nerdy to to call it. It that. is. It is, and they are all delightfully nerdy. It was. It was a fun time for sure. <laughs> um, what was the Elder Scrolls game that made you want to be the lore master? Morrowind. Morrowind. Which I'm, I, th- I think everybody's first Elder Scrolls is the one that they uh, they will always look back at and and sigh. But but my first was Morrowind, and I, I really loved. It. I played it on Xbox so much that the Xbox would crash if I opened my map 
that had too much data for the memory. Yeah. I mean, maybe they did need more QA people. Maybe you should have gone into QA. If if the map is literally crashing the Xbox. (laughs) Yeah, I guess not many people played it as much as I did before I launched. (laughs) I know what you mean about the first first Elder Scrolls. The first one I played was Skyrim, and it was after a Mm -hmm. long time of being away from playing AAA games. And I remember... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm playing it and just sort of being astonished at like how big it was and how you could just stumble across new bits of lore and um you know new oh what there's a pillar okay oh what's over there oh a god is talking to me and they want me to do yeah. something like it felt very alive in a way a lot of games didn't and it's funny because it doesn't feel that way now if i play skyrim particularly but um and for some reason yeah i wanted to i wanted to read the books and learn the lore something about it like got its hooks in me in that way and it got its hooks in you too as well it sounds like yeah exactly i think that the the magic of stumbling across a coherent world or something that proves that the world itself makes sense in some way that you can't immediately see it it feels easy to the player but it's actually the result of you know thousands of hours of of careful design and create and content creation and and that magic trick i think is what really drew me into games mm. Is there something, though, that made you because, you know, I experienced so many magic tricks. Right. But I never experienced the moment that made me say, oh, I want to go into games. Right. Mm-hmm. Like what mm-hmm. what was it? And at what point in your life did you have that thought of like, oh, wait, I want to make these and I'm going to Google it and like take the steps. Well, in undergraduate, I was studying um, biology. I thought I wanted to be a medical researcher. Mm. And yet somehow I always ended up spending all my free time writing short stories Mm. for my creative writing class. I was going way above and beyond, spending way more hours on that than I was on my microbiology lab (laughs) or things like that. And I sort of realized that... Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm too selfish. I don't know. But I I was just realizing my passion wasn't um, in the lab. It was definitely... You characterize it as selfish that you weren't doing biochemistry stuff. Like the most most boring, difficult... (laughs) I mean, I know people... I know there are people, probably people listening who are like, I love biology, (laughs) but like, that's not fun stuff. Like... No, and I, I mean, I guess that's part of it, is that somebody still has to do it, even though it's not super fun. Yeah. Um, but I was like, well, if I can, I should try. And so I actually switched my major to English literature, and I had a much better time. And I realized in writing those stories that what I really wanted to write was games. That mm. that was how I always thought about it. I always thought about, well if the player could somehow play in this world, that would be so much more satisfying for me as a writer, as a creator. And at the end of the day, that's what I ended up trying to do is, is create these worlds that players could explore. And I'm, I'm glad that Kit Fox has been able to, to let me do that. <laughs> that. That actually really brings me back to something in the interview I did with Sam Barlow uh, just a couple weeks ago. None of it has aired yet, but it all, let's just assume it's going to air in that order. We mm-hmm. talked about like something about being able to explore or interact with the story, somehow making it r- more rewarding. Um, uh, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, my senior thesis as an English literature major was about how, I mean, the reader does have a big impact even on books. Like, we don't think of it that way typically, but 
someone reading a book interprets how a scene looks in their mind and they interpret how some characters are feeling or things like that. They bring themselves into the book. And a lot of very pretentious academic papers have been written about that. But in games, it's it's undeniable. The player mm-hmm. is absolutely there. It's absolutely influencing things in ways that aren't just debatable, floofy, abstract interpretations. They're literally making choices and literally having mechanical effects. And, and so, I mean, it, it sounds silly to think of the player as kind of the co-developer of the game, but that is how you end up having to think about them because mm. their experience is the whole point of it. Right. So right. it's, it's in some ways it's easier because it's mechanical. You can actually codify how the player will react to a situation or can react to a situation. Whereas in a book, you just have to imagine it and they get to play a much more passive role. And it's, it's much more, I don't know, difficult to, to understand what, what is happening in their mind. But you raise a good point that in when even when someone is reading, I mean, you characterize it as passive, but like I, I don't know, I feel that watching a movie is pretty passive, but like reading is you're like taking text and converting it into image in your own mind, <laughs> right? You're, it's true. It's true. You're a wizard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you you're controlling the pace at which the story unfolds, and you're mm-hmm. maybe flipping back and forth. Uh, if mm-hmm. there's you're, you're looking at the map in the front of the book. <laughs> if there's a if you're reading hey, you a can, fantasy you can novel, fast forward and backtrack in uh, Netflix programs too. It's possible. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, and you're also bringing in your knowledge of whatever you know source material it is. Mm-hmm. If it's a book about. If you're reading, I don't know, Wolf Hall about the Tudor dynasty or whatever, yeah, if you yeah. know something about those people, then you're bringing that in. Or yeah. if you don't have that, then it, you're having a different experience. And that is similar to gaming in, in certain ways, that you are that you are shaping it uh, by bringing something to it. Yeah, it just gets overshadowed by um, the, the more heavy... Um, things that players do in the game, but all of that is still there for sure. Yeah. But there's also that experience of finding the, like if you took all of the Skyrim lore, right, and you published it as a book and you handed it to me, uh, I would find that a lot less interesting Mm -hmm. than, Mm -hmm. I'd probably read even less of it than I read in Mm -hmm. Skyrim. Um, (laughs) But a joke about Skyrim is that like, uh, or Morrowind or anything is that no, hey, nobody's reading all that lore. Who's reading those books, right? And I, I felt that way too until I came across a book and it mentioned a name of like a god elsewhere that had talked to me, and I was like, oh, actually, I'm a little curious, right? And yeah, then you, what is this guy? <laughs> yeah, and that random access of it because you're always following your own curiosity uh, makes you like it. It, ma- it makes it more powerful for you, like that, uh, like that more even more active interaction with the text. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's co-owned by the player. It's directed by the player. The player can actually direct um, what they see and when, and and that makes it so much more meaningful for them personally. Um, But it's kind of interesting to think about it. Like uh, Alex Martin, uh, Droken, I don't know if you've talked with him, the creator of uh, Starseed Pilgrim and a few other things. Mm -hmm. Um, We were talking about system design the other day, and he was saying how in games, especially system-driven games, it's like that parable of the you know the eight blind men and the elephant, where one blind man he's like, oh, it's a rope, and mm-hmm. the other blind man says, no, 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 it's a it's a plate or whatever, and because they're touching different parts of the elephant. And a system-driven game, you ask the player to sort of feel the different parts of the elephant as as they choose and understand what the elephant is over time. 
And he went on further, which I thought was the, the really interesting point, was that um, narratives are like one of the most subtle um, and intricate implied elephants out there because you see these different characters and it implies a thorough world in mm. there. Like a, th- these people have inner lives and they have motivations and really they're just, mm. you know, scripted lines on a, a, a that they speak and, and a voice actor said in a booth somewhere. But we imagine briefly that there's a real person there who's who's going through something and they're having a real interior life and, and a world. And uh, I don't know, I just, I've, I've been struck by that many times now thinking about the, the player feeling out uh, what's happening in the world and what's possible in the world uh, with you. And you kind of help guide them a little bit, but hopefully they can take it on themselves. Yeah. And maybe uh, because they are filling in so many blanks, they have to fill in the blanks of the narrative in order to continue interacting with the system. Right. Um, That it ends up feeling more alive than if they were watching the same material you know, in a movie or something where they're not being asked to interact as much, but instead they have to, they, you know, when the NPC walks off the screen or whatever, they have to think about where did they go in a way. Or, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I think it's, um, it's part of the, the magic that movies wish, I'm sure, that people <laughs> watching them could say, hey, well, hold on, hold on. I really want to know more about this character. Let's follow that character. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I've enjoyed the, the Bandersnatch or whatever um, silliness that they're, they're doing with interactive stuff now. But um, the fact that the player can actually have some of that ownership of, of deciding what parts of the world they want to investigate is, is absolutely magical because that's how we experience real life. Yeah. We decide where to put our attention and where to put our energy. Yeah. And, and it and it rewards us with with more detail. <laughs> um, uh, so, you were thinking about these things as an English person, right. <laughs> as, not an English yes. person. Sorry, <laughs> an English student, um, and that, but that ended up leading you to games. Yes, um, I mean, I I've played games since I was very little. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of a stereotypical game developer in in many ways, but um, it wasn't until. I had written a lot that I realized what I really wanted to write were, were interactive experiences. What's the first game you can remember playing when you were very little? Bubble Bobble. Yeah? Bubble Bobble for NES, uh, I believe, was my first game. I loved Bubble Bobble. Yeah. I just we, I got it on emulator uh, recently, and it's, uh, it's pretty tough, but yeah. I think I'm going to beat my high score. <laughs> <laughs> the high score you had when you were a little kid? I, I think I've already done that, but we'll, we'll see. I was very patient as a kid. I, when you only have two games, you have to be patient. Yeah. That game for me was like one of those games I only ever rented or sometimes saw in an arcade, so it had a bit of mm-hmm. a mystical lost quality to me where I never kind of got my arms around it. But Yeah, yeah. Um, and that game had so many levels. Yeah. I, I feel like it it shouldn't end if it does. I mean, I'm sure it does. I, yeah. I haven't gotten there, but... It doesn't feel like it should. It just feels like it should always destroy you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So uh, when you were, we're jumping all around the timeline here, uh, but let's get <laughs> a little up closer to the to the present day. Because what I'm curious about is you were uh, working on MMOs in Norway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're you're working away at some big games that you don't own, but you've got maybe a comfy gig. I'm imagining. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and fast forward to today, you are running your own company. 
mm-hmm. how does that transition happen? Because that's a rare that's a rare one. Not not a lot of people do that. Well, it's it's becoming more common, but for me, it sort of happened organically. Um, I'm actually doing a tweet thread like one year a day, thinking through how it all went down uh, right now. Mm. But it's it was mostly that I was involved in the local community here in Montreal because uh, Funcom, the the MMO company, they had moved me from Norway. They paid for the move, um, taking advantage of Quebec tax credits and things like that. Mm. Um, and but after a couple of years, uh, Secret World was disappointing, so they gave me an option. They said, Tanya, we like you. We like your work. We'd love to keep working with you. So come move to North Carolina. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, those were the options. It was either move to North Carolina or get laid off. And um, this, so... is, this is when you were in Montreal. Yes. You know... So I moved to Montreal. I'm here in the local community. I'm showing off little prototypes and doing stuff on the side um, for fun, um, either alone or with, with my romantic life partner. We, we made little games. It was, it was good times. Um, but then, yeah, uh, I didn't want to move to North Carolina at all. So I really love Montreal. Montreal's great. Yeah, no, it's an incredible No city. insult to North Carolina, but I prefer it here. Um, so I was without a job, and it just so happened that that was also the time an incubator was starting, um, a game-focused um, incubator. So they were going to invest a little bit of money as long as I promised them I would release well, I'd have to build a team, pitch a game, and then and, and that would have to be in two weeks or something. That That's how crazy the deadlines wow. were. But uh, then I would have to actually build that game. It had to be a free-to-play mobile game because this was 2013. Um, <laughs> free-to-play mobile game, and I'd have to promise to build it within six months. Um, and, and who's running this incubator? Uh, it was, it was called Execution Labs, uh, run by Jason De La Roca, who's a pretty prominent figure, at least here in Montreal. He mm-hmm. sort of has his, his fingers in everything and knows everybody. Um, but he was organizing it sort of as a, a shotgun approach where he was funding 10 different studio, micro studios, each like three or four people. And, uh, with the hopes that one of them would take off. And so you uh, and you pitched at this in order to like get something going. Yeah, I mean, well, I had already known Jason because again, I was so local, I was yeah. so visible in the local community. Jason was like, "Hey, Tanya, like you should definitely bring a team. You have two weeks. Get 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 over here." <laughs> yeah. Um, and when I reached out, I literally made a Facebook post in local meetup group saying, "Anyone want to start a company?" Um, <laughs> and I met for coffee with a couple of strangers, and it worked out really well. Uh, I got good vibes from them. I liked their portfolios and. We're still together, most of us. So, um, so this is really complain. a product. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Of of you being like in the in the scene in Montreal. That even though you lost your job, you're not sort of like alone in the ocean. You're in this very fertile soup. I'm mixing metaphors terribly, but you're you're in this like <laughs> fertile soup. Nobody wants fertile soup. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always think of like a good scene as like the. You know, the primordial ooze, like the Petri dish, like there's a lot of chemicals floating around and stuff can recombine really easily. So, like, you're in a situation where you have experience, people know you, you know other people, things can happen. Uh, Is that how you felt at the time or were you frightened? I... (laughs) Well, I was also interviewing at some of the big companies um, and it looked like my plan before I was persuaded by Jason to, to try to go mm-hmm. indie that I'd probably just end up working at Ubisoft because it's sort of this gravity well in Montreal where if, yeah. if, 
if you're not doing anything else, you'll, you'll probably just get sucked into Ubisoft at some point. Yeah. Um, which might still happen to me someday. Who knows? But <laughs> uh, I was interviewing and, and thinking about my options. And at the end of the day, I made the jump indie in a very laissez-faire way that was like, I'll try it for six months. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't work out, I'll try other options. But it did. It does feel, it, it's kind of amazing the power of a good network when you do feel like you can show what your value is and people will recognize it and you'll have options yeah. somehow, even if they're not the best options, even if they're not your dream options, you'll have options. And that, that is a very privileged place to be, but um, it, it takes a lot of years of work and relationships to build it up, even in the best of cases. Yeah. So I'm thankful I, I have that, you know, more and more every year, but I, it means I can't retreat too much into my my little hermit shell as much as I, I'd like to sometimes because yeah. those relationships are what keeps me sane that I allow myself to fail sometimes because I know I put in the work to help get myself out of it someday. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's an underrated part of the creative process and of working in any industry. You know, when when people ask me how to get into comedy – I always tell them, well, it's not like a, a lottery ticket, like a lot of people think it is. You you need to move to Chicago, New York, or L.A., <laughs> right? Probably New York or L.A. I suggest New York. And then you need to do work and you need to meet people. And then you need to, like, know people for, like, 10 years. And then eventually, yep. you know, you'll all rise up together and, and people will know you. And, you know, that's how it works. And... You know, but no, nobody really shares that piece of information quite enough um, that how social it is and how important that part of it is. And so some folks end up sort of hermiting themselves off and, uh, you know, they're like, oh, I'll just write. I'll, I'll, I'll get really good at writing pilots alone in my room, you know, <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't work uh, that well a lot of the time. Yeah, I think I think games uh, does have the advantage of at least it's not a performance art in the same way. So you can separate yourself a little bit from the work. And if you put out work that people really, really love, maybe you don't have to network as much. Like Lucas Pope mm-hmm. in Japan, I mean, he had a, a lot of um, success in his career before that. He did know some people, but his work does stand alone very well to sure. recommend him. Um, and and that's very impressive. But it's the thing that's the saddest about network effects is how insular it can become. Mm-hmm. I, I'm also the co-director for a, a feminist nonprofit called Pixels here in Montreal to help more women um, like make games and, and thrive in the games industry. And we're finding that it's difficult, especially the more the more types of marginalized you are. Like if you're, you know, um, a woman of color, you're going to go through a lot more difficulties than I did. And if you're if you're a trans woman or you know, all these, there's so many ways that you can be excluded just because, yeah. you know, you don't feel like you fit in or people don't reach out to you and think of you when there's a new opportunity. There, there's lots of um, very subtle ways that networking is more difficult for some people. But I think if we, we all try to make it a little bit easier and, and maybe we make some systemic uh, improvements yeah and it'll get better over time yeah i mean it's a it's a great point right that if w- when social connections are so important then you need to be able to hang and mm. some folks are not able to hang either because they're explicitly excluded or i, I don't know they have social anxiety or, <laughs> something or like they that. just don't feel comfortable yeah. like honestly so many women i know don't feel comfortable going to a party where there's a, an open bar 
Yeah. Even though those are the, 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 the favorite parties for those of us who do, right? But if if there's an open bar and you're a woman who feels like, you know, or maybe you've been roofied before, like right. you might not want to go to those parties. And I think that's totally reasonable. But that might also be where the publishers are waiting to find yep. the, the cool new companies. And, and it's a difficult question. Yeah. Or it's just where you are chatting with someone outside smoking a cigarette at midnight and then you later bump into them a month later and there's you know where you just make those connections right yeah exactly um yeah i mean all of like the work of like comedy is done in green rooms just like hanging out with other people or you know at at bars late Mm -hmm. at night and like yeah that can be difficult for folks um but yeah i think to your point that's why yeah, like having more inclusive social events and, and things like that are, it, it's, I don't know, sometimes it seems like trivial to do that, but it really is important. Yeah, it's it's hard to defend because, you know, we're like, we're raising money for various things in Pixels. And one of the things we do every year is a tea salon arcade where we show off like local diverse creators and we serve tea and cookies. And it seems really silly. And it's like, oh, well, you know, women don't always have to drink tea. And ah, like, like there's, there's so many ways you can criticize everything. But um, at the end of the day, having yeah events where people all can feel comfortable is uh, is important to me. Yeah. Get the company going because yes. of this incubator. You make your mobile game, correct? Correct. Although we're we're developing the Steam game in parallel because we never were that interested in mobile. So uh, <laughs> yeah, who is? we we released the the premium Steam version. I think three months later or something because it was already being developed. Got it. What what was the name of that game? Shattered Planet. Shattered Planet. It was called a very good roguelike by the New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the yeah. famed famed game uh, publication, the New Yorker. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were fancy from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible, uh, and uh, and then was that enough of a success to to keep it going? No, 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 definitely not. In fact, I tell everybody never bet on your first game being uh, successful enough to carry you anywhere, but. Uh, we did manage to scrounge money from a few different places. We got a tiny bit of VC funding that was sort of through the government, Canadian style. We got, <laughs> got a little it. bit of a, a different Canadian grant. Uh, we did a Kickstarter for Moon Hunters, which did really well. Um, and we also did a little contract for Cartoon Network. We we made a, a Steven Universe browser game uh, for oh. a month. Um, yeah, we just we, we scrounged money everywhere and shoved it into Moon Hunters and... Uh, that helped us survive. Yeah. <laughs> and the Moon Hunters, which I have not played, I, I apologize, but um, no. was that an early Switch game, wasn't it? It came to Switch uh, pretty early, yeah, as well. Um, that was a, a little while later, but it, it ended up coming to uh, all three consoles, um, but it was desktop first. We're, we tend to do desktop first. Got it. Um, and so you're just scrounging money here and there, slowly building. Is the... Is the company breaking even pretty quickly or are you relying on outside funding? So I had done the calculation mentally that if we sold zero copies of Moon Hunters, we'd have to close after three months. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was freaking me out a little bit. So there's actually around when Moon Hunters launched, we took another contract um, with a, a bigger publisher, um, which later got canceled. But they were paying us 
a lot to work on an IP that we really, really liked, um, which I can't talk about. <laughs> um, but it was a it was a fun year uh, working in the shadows on this this mysterious game. Um, and meanwhile, making the Moon Hunters DLC and and trying to tread water, basically. But that contract and the profitability of that contract is what let us sort of um, keep hoarding what sales there were of Moon Hunters, and that was our our, our war chest um, for being able to then develop uh, Boyfriend Engine and Lucifer within us um, after the the project was canceled. Oh, so the the wait the big thing was can- the thing you can't talk about was canceled. Yeah, after a year of work, um, they they were like, "Oh, we're going a different direction. See ya." Um, but your your NDA is still in force when the project's canceled. Always, <laughs> there are so many developers whose resume says "unannounced title this year," "unannounced wow. title this year," "unannounced title." It's so sad that they when yeah you you're on an unannounced project because the the NDA lasts forever. So I guess the because the company in question and you can. You can tell me we have to move on whenever you like, but the company in question maybe never announced the game, and so they ne- they don't want anybody to know that they even were working on it because they don't want to deal with all of the, oh, hey, like this company was working on a Star Wars game that you never got to play or exactly, whatever the hell it was. Exactly, yeah. Got it. That's... uh. But that's fucked up for you because then you can't <laughs> you can't say that we worked on this game like you can't go out and tell you know Ubisoft or whoever else or or you know you go meet Shigeru Miyamoto you can't tell him oh here was my big thing I worked on you know come hire me to work on uh, whatever else <laughs> right yeah no it's a it's a year of my life that you know I learned a lot anyway so you can't you can't call it a total loss but it was a year yeah. of my life that sort of magically disappeared uh, from from the face of the world it seemed like. Um, but in another way, it, it sort of just highlighted to me the value of working on your own IP and figuring mm-hmm. out a way to do self-publishing because then I'm in control of if I want to cancel something, that's up to me. And if I want to talk about something, that's that's my job to figure out when it's appropriate. And I I find that that's more powerful than it seems at first. Yeah. But having felt what it's like to have a, a work-for-hire um, type game canceled under me, I, I now feel even more strongly that I <laughs> would, no matter how profitable it is, I, I feel like I'd, re- well, okay, maybe not no matter how profitable, but generally, <laughs> yeah, I would rather work on a slightly less profitable game that I'm in full control over. Yeah, I, I relate to that so much in my, in my own work. I mean, it's... Uh, you know, you can. It can be very rewarding, and and it can be a mm-hmm. great way to to bring in your uh, paycheck to work on someone else's project. But it's so important to have, even just for your own creativity, things that you're working on where no one can tell you no, and no one can stop it from happening, and where you, you don't have to pitch anybody other than the audience. And and the risk of that is that yeah, it won't be successful. Nobody will like it that much. Uh, <laughs> but but. Of all the risks, that's probably the most fun risk to take. Yeah, for sure. And so you're, uh, are, uh, you're, you're focusing on building that kind of work for your company as you are also doing this contract work and et cetera. Yeah, and over time we've, we've gotten to the point where thankfully we don't need to rely on finding you know client work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we haven't for a few years, but... You know, if Boyfriend Engine flops and and Lucifer within us flops and then Dwarf Fortress implodes, I don't know. It, it seems unlikely, but Dwarf if Fortress all of these things happen, 
yeah, no, everything's going to be great. Yeah. But um, if somehow I was in a parallel dimension, the worst possible timeline, um, you know, we could go back to client work. It, it, it could happen, I guess. But you're it's not the worst thing. But after that big project, like now you are a going concern just based on like your own IP or the IP of others that you're publishing for real. I'm, I'm not sure I understand your question. Oh, like the, the company is self-sufficient based on that type of work. Currently, currently. I mean, it'll only last for so long. According to my projections, if we don't release something in the next, you know, year and a half, then we're we're doomed. But uh, I think I think we'll manage. <laughs> but I mean, look, e even having any amount of self-sufficiency on that basis as a true indie is an incredible accomplishment. Thank you very much. I feel like people don't really understand that. But yeah, the, the math, like you said, of, of salaries is pretty intense. <laughs> well, especially when you're just reaching out to folks on the Internet, you know, um, and say, hey, I hope you have enough interest in this game. I, hey, I hope you click buy on the Steam library. I hope you uh, like the screenshot on the Switch, uh, you know, online store. I hope our pitch on Kickstarter sounds like something that you're interested in enough to want to back. I mean, that is a very difficult road to hoe, especially when, you know, you're not, you're not just a YouTuber, like, putting stuff up and people get to watch it right away. Like, they have to spend some money. Maybe the game's not going to come out for a while. You're not, you're not publishing games that often, right, at once you know, like you said, uh, every year and a half or so, maybe, uh, that's like a lot of, that, that, that's a lot of things that have to go right to help that happen. Yeah. I think it helps that we've tried to focus on making our brand as it were, um, very human. Mm. We've gone out of our way to try to name all the developers that work on a game and, and give them, you know, camera time when there's Kickstarter and, and have them on the floor at PAXs and, and really just try to expose us as people. Because I think if we can make a human connection with our players, and that's something that the bigger studios can't do. Like they physically can't humanize their thousand person teams. It's not mm -hmm. possible. So if we have four people working on a game most of the time, then that's that's achievable. We can make those four people actually people. And then the fans that we have you know, can actually feel like they're getting to know us and, and follow us. And hopefully that makes them a little bit more invested from game to game. <laughs> and so we've been sort of building the Kit Fox, um, you know, voice and brand alongside each game yeah. uh, rather than focusing only on each game and hoping people will, will, will keep going with us from title to title. That's all. Awesome. I mean, that's what this show is all about is trying to humanize the process of game development as well. Yeah. So, um, but so how do you know when you are evaluating an idea. I mean, you've, you've, uh, you're talking about very different types of games here that you're describing that you've put out. Um, how do you, if you're looking at it and saying, okay, we've got to sell a certain number of copies of this game, or like we literally close down, right? If we don't sell, if we don't move this number of units, the end, or we have to take another contract job for a thing yep, that we, yep, yep. We, we'd prefer not to do that. Um, so when you're looking at something like Boyfriend Dungeon, uh, mm -hmm. how do you know that, that this is going to sell? How, other than your own, I'm sure there's your own feeling of, well, hey, I want to play it. Other people want to, too. Right. But beyond that, I've, I've tried getting more confident in that. It's hard. It's it's difficult to to trust your gut that way. Um, I feel like it's so it can be so misleading um, for us. 
we have a, a semi-formalized process where we prototype and then we, we actually do pretty thorough market research. Um, Boyfriend Engine is a funny example because I did so much market research. I spent, you know, a week or whatever trying to figure out how well I thought this game would sell before we announced it. And there was a big gaping hole where games like it would be. Mm. So it's not like there were a bunch of failed games like it or a bunch of successful games like it. There just weren't that many games like it at all. And that makes it really hard because you don't, you can't do a calculation with, you know, zero as your, your multiplier or whatever. Um, it's just a big question mark. Um, so publishers were also kind of skittish before that. Mm. I, I was seeing if any publishers were interested and they were like, mm, I don't know. The name's kind of weird. Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> And, and then we announced it, and it went kind of viral and crazy, yeah. and it was on, like, random TV channels. And and at that point, we were like, okay, it's probably going to do at least X well based on what we've seen. And so we can invest this much. Um, and the more we talked about it, the more it, it, it kept getting more and more exposure, and, and we were confident in investing more and more. But at the beginning, we really saw it as what is the minimal version we can do because we really want to make this game, but we shouldn't invest too much before we know that it will find a home. Yeah. But the pitch went viral for it. Like just you you saying, hey, here's the log line. Here's a piece of art. Maybe a trailer did you have at that point? A or? trailer. Uh -huh. we, we did do the trailer. Although we made a big mistake in that we released the trailer and it went viral and we forgot or didn't think to put up our Steam Coming Soon page for two weeks after. Ah, so we lost out on like most of the wish lists that we would have accrued during that time, mm. um, but that's all right because I think most of those people would find it at some point. But it was a little bit disappointing at the time <laughs> <laughs> to realize our own mistake. But so that's when I would have seen it, right? Was mm. was it mm -hmm. was probably covered on? I read Kotaku every day. It's probably on Kotaku. Yeah, probably. Got it. Um, and then and then a year later, um, we did the the Kickstarter and it got another wave of interest because mm -hmm. uh, we made a new trailer. Have you had the opposite happen with any of your projects where you, you know, you, you've released a couple of games at this point where, where you felt, oh, this is really going to hit. And then you make the game, you release the game and whimper by comparison. Well, Shattered Planet was definitely a game that it shows really well when people play it. They really enjoy it. It's a well-made game. Um, it's pretty compelling. Like the, it's, it's almost not quite addictive, but it's, it's very compelling. You can't want to keep playing it. Um, and yet, it, you know, it doesn't sell itself at all. You, there's nothing I can say about it that'll make you want to try it because from the beginning it was based on a prototype, which was fun. Mm -hmm. um, it was not based in the idea of a hook or something that I could tell you about that was interesting. It was um, the original concept was, oh, the first few turns of civilization, but as an RPG, which it turns out later is actually just a, a roguelike. That's just, that's what a roguelike <laughs> is. But uh, I didn't think about that at the time. Um, and yeah, it's a, it felt like, you know, I was shouting into the void. We were starting and, and it felt like it was unclear. Is this a problem with the game or is it a problem that, you know, I've never tried to market on Twitter before. I've never tried to make a trailer before. How much of it is inexperience um, and how much of it is really the void is uncaring because of this game. So sorting that out was a learning experience. Uh, and did you, like when that game came out, was it was that a rocky moment for you at all? Was that 
difficult financially, emotionally, personally? <laughs> financially and emotionally, personally, yes. I didn't have very high expectations, so no. it wasn't crushing or anything. Um, Moon Hunters was an interesting case in that it was tracking much better generally, but it also had a disappointing launch, which we then turned around. Um, I gave a, a talk at some point about... Um, why that happened but basically we launched moon hunters a little bit too early and at the wrong time mm. and so it was it was kind of devastating actually there's a a vermont pbs special on how disappointing that launch was because they happened to have cameras at our launch party wow and everyone in the dev team is like do i have to go to the launch party i don't want to go to the launch party <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're all sad well, well, um, you were sad for the launch party why, why were you already sad because Moonhunters had, had just come out three days before, oh. and we knew that it was disappointing. It had undersold by, you know, like 10 times what we thought it would sell. Oh. And and it, eventually we turned it around with the DLC and bug fixes and, and yeah. more PR and whatever. It, it ended up being fine. Um, but there was that window where we were like, well, I'm glad we have this redacted mystery contract because... Maybe it was going to be pretty dire, but yeah. it turned out okay. But, Everyone's okay. But people wanted that... <laughs> cathartic moment of it's out there and people are loving it let's watch the numbers go up and and you just weren't having it yeah there's actually i don't know i don't remember if they put it in the final footage but i know they were filming us watch the numbers go well they were supposed to be going up and they weren't really <laughs> we were like oh how many hours delayed is this it's not delayed okay <laughs> yeah uh Oh man, yeah, that's so that's so tough. The the feeling of putting so much of your life into something and then just people not really experiencing it, or they are, but there's just a oh yeah okay, like that's nice. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's not the same as oh my god, you have to see this, which is um, yeah. thankfully hopefully what we what we what it as what we saw later once uh, we'd fixed everything with the Moon Hunters uh, situation. How do you pull yourself up and keep going when you've had that? experience of of the bad launch you know um for us it was a it was a process um of focusing on the fact that we knew we had made a good game and we knew that people liked it um and they liked the idea of it and we had made something very very similar to, to what we had pitched in the kickstarter so clearly there was something there um and in our case it helped to keep working on it and we were able to turn it around but uh, if we hadn't been able to turn it around because we, we didn't know. We were like, should we keep working on this or not? Maybe we're just throwing good money after bad and we're wasting more of our lives on this thing that nobody will ever appreciate. But we told ourselves that we should do the investment anyway because then we would be sure we'd be proud of it. We didn't want to walk away from something we weren't proud of. Mm -hmm. So we said, well, even if nobody else buys it, we're going to put in another few months and, and tie it up with a ribbon and then we'll feel okay with ourselves. Yeah. Um, and I mean, thankfully, other people also liked it. But <laughs> I, I think no matter what, it it would have it it was good for our our souls to be able to do that. Yeah. I find that that nexus of like emotion or or soul and and business to be so interesting because it seems like they shouldn't meet, right? Like the part of you that's thinking as a business person. Mm -hmm. Well, the part of me that thinks he's a business person is like, well, you can't think about that because it's a numbers game, right? And it's a, it's a science and it's math and it's people's livelihoods and it should just be that. But then the part of you that's making art is like needs to be doing it soulfully and you need, you, you're need you looking for that sense of completion and that sense of closure on mm -hmm. it, uh, which 
is not a business concern and could even mm-hmm. lead you to make a business mistake. But yet the two yeah. things are happening in the same place and they kind of they kind of need to. Do you feel that tension? Absolutely. And green lighting a project is probably one of the the core problems of that. Like you were saying, how do you pick which game to to go forward with? How do you choose how much money to put into a game and and it is this weird dance between art and science and I don't know if anyone will ever get it perfectly right, but I, I've gotten a lot of uh, joy from the mentorship of uh, Ryan Clark, who runs Brace Yourself Games. He, he does a, a weekly stream as well now of uh, Clark Tank, where he, he does his, his thoughts on business development and the, the science of, of what games will sell well. And, and at the end of it, it is sort of the case that if, even if I made a game and it sold zillions of copies, but I wasn't proud of it, I don't think that would be a good outcome. I think that's yeah. It, it would be hard to complain, but I wouldn't be satisfied. Maybe I'll never be satisfied as an artist, <laughs> and that's fine. That's okay. Um, but I don't want to be ashamed either. But are you satisfied? As a, do you get artistic satisfaction from the way you're doing it now? It seems like you do. I do. I do. I'm very proud of what's happening with Boyfriend Dungeon, and I'm glad that some people are enjoying it. But even if a lot of people wouldn't. I would still get a lot of pleasure from making it. Uh, let me ask the business part of you, right? Like you started this conversation okay. by saying that you're... No, I'm not asking that part of you specifically. I'm asking about it. <laughs> I'm not addressing your okay. business half right now. <laughs> but I mean, you're saying, you said early on in this conversation, oh, when I'm looking at my projections, right? Mm-hmm. Yet mm-hmm. then you described your... Uh, background as an English student, <laughs> right? Yep. And yep, is working yep. on MMOs. Uh, what is your connection with, you know, being a business person? Do you, how did you find that you could do that? Do you enjoy that part of yourself? You know, yeah. How, how, how do you think about that bit? Well, I've, enjoyed it in that I felt like it it was a it was a new and exciting art at the time uh, when we started the incubator they brought in a lot of different um, people to give advice on you know what is a business plan and how do you calculate burn rate and how do you do projections and things like that and um, it was new and exciting at first um, now it is sort of this this chore that I have to do I'm a responsible person it's like brushing your teeth mm-hmm. like if you don't brush your teeth you're gonna be sad later um, it's really worth it to, to floss um, now and then. <laughs> um, and I realized that I actually do enjoy the what I call the internal business development of a studio. Mm. Um, I enjoy making sure that Kid Fox has a culture that I like, that the people are treating each other well, that people are happy doing their work, that um, it's a good place to be. And that it's growing healthily, it's people's careers are growing, the products are growing, that kind of thing. Um, I don't enjoy external business development very much. And I hope no investors are listening to this. But (laughs) I I will probably at some point have to hire somebody to manage um, business partners and things. Because I I really don't enjoy asking people for money at all. Mm. That is not something that comes to me easily. It never will. And I, if I could never do it again, that'd be great. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it is also a really important part of things is meeting with you know, Sony and Nintendo and, and figuring out how are we going to make this game together and how are we going to distribute it? And, and, you know, they're all lovely people, but a business relationship isn't the same as a team collaborating together, which is what I really enjoy. Yeah. Do you feel that, let's see how to put this question. Um, 
you know, you were working as a game developer, right? Now you run a studio, you employ game developers. Um, mm -hmm. And how do you feel about why you individually ended up in that role, whereas other folks are, you know, working on, on other contract pieces? Do you think that you have certain characteristics that are rare? Do you think that you ended up in a certain circumstance, uh, you know, through luck or, or through fortuitiveness? Or do you uh, feel that, I mean, sometimes when I think about, you know, why I'm doing my you know, I'm like, oh, I I happen to be okay at talking on the phone to TV executives. And I don't, like, think that's a great skill to have. I'm not like, oh, that's I deserve to be the boss, right? Because I have this amazing skill. I'm just yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. other comedy writers can't really do it, right? Uh, th since I can, well, then I might as well do it, right? <laughs> so that so that others don't have to, in a way. Um, do you have... That, that is definitely part of it. I think, I think I do have some skills and aptitudes and a certain flexibility that lets me be, I don't know, enjoy it more than others or, mm -hmm. or learn it more quickly. Or I, I don't resist a lot of the, the, the things I have to do as an indie CEO. Um, but I, I don't think it's anything unlearnable. And I, and I, I'm sure there's a parallel universe where I used, you know, my, these aptitudes for something completely different, but I, I do get the feeling sometimes that until they actually see what I do, people think they want my job. <laughs> and then and then they work with me and and, and I and I, you know, I open the door a little bit of I'm showing them like how much of my day is spent answering emails or things like that. Yeah. And and they realize or making decisions that are going to be unpopular or Yeah. Doing something, or even worse, making creative decisions, and you have no idea if what you're doing is the right decision. Like you could be wasting months of your life on something, and that's your—that's up to you. You just wasted someone else's three months of their life, um, and that decision isn't very fun. So, I'll—I'll I'll do it, and hopefully, I'll—I'll <laughs> I'll keep earning the trust of my team yeah. to keep doing it. Um, but. I, I do hope that I'll be able to focus more on the parts that I enjoy over the years. <laughs> <laughs> I relate to I relate to that a lot, that there's a certain ambivalence about it. But I think that's part of what makes you a good uh, boss, manager, CEO, is if you're not really that into the, the, the if people who are like, I want to be the boss, and that's their main goal is, is being boss of somebody. I don't care where I'm the boss. I just want to be the boss. Uh, that Those tend to be bad bosses, but <laughs> ambivalent. Yeah. You know, but you can't resist it either if you say, well, I'm not a real boss. I'm just like everybody else. Then you end up fucking up for different reasons because, like, no, you need a little bit of hierarchy. And you have to acknowledge the power you have. Yes. And I think people people need a decision maker. Um, at least the people I work with tend to be more relaxed when they know who's to blame when something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, if something goes wrong, it's almost always to some extent my fault. Yeah. If it goes right, it's not necessarily related to me. But if it's wrong, it's definitely me. And and that's, that's all right. I'll take that. Um, <laughs> there was a, a professor in grad school who told me, um, you know, this is a dream job and at a normal job, you're going to hate it 80% of the time and you'll, you'll find a way to like it 20% of the time. And in a dream job, well, you'll, you'll love it 80% of the time, but there's still that other 20% and you just have to accept that even a dream job, you're not going to love 100% of the time. Yeah. Because it's, otherwise it's not a job. It's <laughs> something else. <laughs> I often think uh, so, sometimes when I'm like really 
slaving away on a script, you know, and I'm when I'm in the really the worst part, I think of that stupid expression, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And I think, no, no, no. If you do what you love for a living, then you'll just learn to hate the thing that you love. <laughs> It'll just destroy yeah. your love. Uh, but when you're in the pits, uh, yeah. it, it, it's pretty dire. <laughs> yeah, but uh, hopefully you still have those moments where you look around and say, "Okay, wait, this is really cool." I'm, the, you know, and appreciate it. Are you able to do that? Yeah, I mean, I was writing dates with a scythe this morning. Like, what happens <laughs> when you take you take a scythe to an arcade? Like, what does the scythe have to say about that? that I mean, I'm, I'm definitely living the dream over here. <laughs> um, okay, uh, just two more questions uh, that I, I would love to ask you. One is, uh, what do you like to play for fun? If Do you go home and play something at night? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I play all kinds of games, generally indie these days. But um, just the other day, my partner and I started uh, playing, you know, couch co-op uh, style. One, one controller we pass back and forth. But uh, Outer Wilds mm-hmm. is what we're, we're up to right now. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really good fun. Yeah. I was actually on the uh, the IGF jury some years ago um, when it won. And, you know, the prototype was great then. But yeah. seeing the final finished product is really great. Yeah. I'm, I'm having a great time. Yeah, but I, I always love games that are about curiosity and exploring. So, you know, Elder Scrolls, we talked about before, but uh, Breath of the Wild was amazing yeah. for, for being able to just wander and find cool things. Um, and Outer Wilds also feels like a good curiosity-driven game. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to love it. Is there anything you play that you don't rhapsodize about in a game design context that you're like, well, this isn't like good, but I play a ton of it or I would play a ton of it? <laughs> like right now I'm playing Destiny 2 and I'm like, I don't think I like this, but I will go home and play it every night. You know, like it, there's just something about the rhythm of it that I can chill out with. Um, oh, that's that's word games on my phone. Uh-huh. Um, I have various, various word games. Uh, there's like a Cody crossword and there's a wordscapes and all these. They're just just, yeah, word type games I play on my commute. Yeah, and, uh, I, I don't even register as as playing in my mind but there they are <laughs> yeah I, I wrote this year that on my game of the year list that my most played game was the new york times crossword puzzle app yep there you go there you go <laughs> just trying to put it in that same context Hardcore. <laughs> well and then my last question is uh do you can you say when boyfriend dungeon's coming out or uh any can you give tease us anything about it uh, that you're excited I can tell you that last month, um, Nintendo announced that it will be coming to Switch. Oh, hell yeah. So so that's exciting. It's perfect for Switch. Yeah, I think it'll be really good. It's it's beautiful. And I just saw new transformation animation of the, the Glaive, um, which is great. <laughs> I saw um, the animation. We're anima- working on it very... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I saw the animations in the demo, and they're so cool. They're like the best anime transformations you've ever seen of a of a weapon into a very hot person <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much yeah they're each they're each so charming it's really fun to work on because each weapon is differently attractive um, with their own personalities and and yeah we're, we're hoping it'll come out this year eh, but we'll keep keep an eye on our twitter i guess <laughs> can i just put an idea into your head if when it's mm-hmm. a huge hit and you're swimming, you've got millions in cash, and you don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boyfriend Dungeon anime series 
would you know i am down right now um <laughs> if, if you know any tv executives i should talk to i'll i'll be there with uh, our our queer weapon content anytime <laughs> <laughs> i do know i do know tv executives none who do anime but uh <laughs> you know adult swim's getting into it so maybe they'd true, be true. you know yeah yeah i gotta keep an eye <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Tanya, for coming on the show. It's been really awesome talking to you and sharing your story. Thanks, Adam. I hope we can talk again soon sometime. I would love to. Well, thank you again to Tanya for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, folks. That's it for us this week on Humans Who Make Games. I want to thank our producer, Aristotle Acevedo. And uh, you can find me on social media at Adam Conover. You can follow me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Adam Conover. And until next week, we'll see you next time on Humans Who Make Games. Podcast Network.